0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. And before we jump into today's conversation with Karen O'Brien, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews you get, the more it helps new people find the show and really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes and everybody listening makes sure you screenshot this, post it to your Instagram story, tag at my social life podcast and at Bond Jane Bond. And I'll feature you on the account and send you a message as well. And one other thing before we get into today's podcast, and we recorded this episode. It was over a month ago now. And at that time, coronavirus wasn't as big of a deal in North America as it is today. And obviously things have changed a lot. We are in a global pandemic. Everybody I hope is practicing physical distancing. And, but at the time that wasn't a conversation. We didn't talk about it all in this podcast. And Karen called me and said, "Hey." Can we add a little bit more to the podcast talking about the coronavirus? Because she didn't want this episode to come out in the midst of this uncharted territory, and us to just have not talked about it on the podcast. It didn't wouldn't come across. I don't know if it genuine is the right word, but there was no context about the coronavirus. So she wanted she wanted to come back on and talk about how brands can navigate this new territory and what they can do being in this new global pandemic and i love the idea so karen and i jumped on a second call we recorded another part of the podcast that will air, that comes out at later that plays at the end of this podcast so make sure you stick around to the end of this episode to hear a second bonus conversation between karen and i talking about how brands can navigate the coronavirus situation even if you skip the entire podcast i highly recommend you skip right to the end check the show notes the time code will be in there to hear this conversation about the coronavirus i think there's a ton of value in there and i just want to give karen a special shout out for being willing to have this idea to come back on the podcast to talk about this because i think it's great information for you the listener and i just really appreciate her taking the extra time to come back on the show to talk about it the first hour or so of this episode is going to be the normal episode you're going to have we're going to walk through karen's story from front to back but after that is when the coronavirus conversation will come in so make sure you stick around and listen to that but without further ado i present to you my conversation with karen o'brien What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. And today we're joined by Karen O'Brien. Karen is an award-winning global marketing executive. After moving from Canada to the United States, she started a company during the dot-com boom. She then began doing marketing consulting with Silicon Valley tech companies, ultimately ending up heading up Emerging Media at Wonderman in Seattle, one of the world's biggest marketing agencies. Following that, she transitioned to the corporate side, working as the VP of Marketing, Global Social Media, and Brand Engagement for Western Union, and most recently working for a large national retailer as a VP of Media and Social Media. She's worked with brands like Microsoft, T-Mobile, Verizon, ABC, Dell, HP, Seagate, Cisco, Oracle, PayPal, and more. And I'm very excited to have her here on the podcast today. Karen, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so
0: much. It's my pleasure. So where I want to start, I want to go all the way back. What, what were you like growing up?
1: Well, I grew up in Canada, and I was a very curious kid, um, very creative, and um, really uh, grew up on a family farm where I really wanted to get out and do something. I always felt like I was going to uh, travel and have a career and do something much bigger than
0: uh, stay on
1: the family farm.
0: Okay. And then so ultimately, is that what led you to Ryerson going to school for fashion?
1: Yeah, I, I love to sew, I loved fashion, and I ultimately uh, attended Ryerson's fashion program. Uh, I did the fashion communications uh, track, and my goal was to, you know, basically work in fashion marketing at some point. And, um, you know, I, if I'm looking back, I, I probably should have um, maybe worked in theater or some sort of design a uh, track that I didn't end up doing because I really always gravitate towards the creative.
0: Back to Ryerson and fashion. So after you graduated, you worked in the fashion industry for five years, right?
1: Yeah, I worked in retail in Canada for a while, and you know, I I kind of um, wasn't really going anywhere with the retail grind. I was I was paying my dues, but I felt like I wanted to do more, and I had an opportunity to move to California. And I uh, initially did an international marketing certificate at uh, UC Berkeley um, while I was waiting to get a a work permit. And it was there that I actually met uh, the person who would ultimately become a tech founder in a company that I started.
0: Okay. And now before we get into that tech company... I do want to ask, what was it like going back to school after being away for a substantial period of time when you went to UC Berkeley? Was it a challenge for you to be back in that school environment after working for a while, or was it something you kind of just naturally eased your way back into?
1: It was exciting and energizing. And I won't lie. I mean, it was definitely tough. Um, but But yeah, it was ultimately really, really exciting. And UC Berkeley is a fantastic institution. It was just um at that time when the dot com boom was going on, it was full of people who were basically creating companies.
0: And so it was it was fantastic. Can you tell me more about what it was like there at that time? You said everyone was creating companies. Was there just something special in the air to be in California during the dot com boom?
1: Well, I think there was a convergence of entrepreneurs, um, you know, institutions like Stanford and Berkeley that were um, funding a lot of graduates, venture capital, and just a lot of excitement around entrepreneurs and startups, um, you know, and just new technology being used. I remember I, I would get like an email saying, hey, anybody who's interested in internet marketing, come and meet at Starbucks for a, a, you know, a meetup. And I would get there and there'd be Craig Newmark from Craigslist and a couple of people. Um, it was really a magical time and companies were popping up left and right. It didn't take a lot to get funding either.
0: Wow. So can you tell me about the company you ultimately ended up co-founding it was called Roundpeg and you focused on e-commerce and mobile development, if I'm not mistaken, correct?
1: Yeah, I met uh, who, the person, Aaron Downey, who had ultimately become my, my CEO and um, with a few other people, we started Roundpeg. And um, basically, we focused initially on e-commerce, mobile and web development, custom development. We had a team of developers, and we had a lot of clients. Um, And we were really rocking along, but it was tough. I mean, it was a very um, difficult time where customers wanted um, work done very quickly, and they wanted to really push the boundaries of what browser security and browser technology would enable them to do. But it was also exciting. Mm -hmm. I was getting, um, you know, sort of a real life MBA while I was um, doing work there.
0: Mm -hmm. And You said you had quite a few clients. I had, I'm here, you had over 80 clients at one point. How did you go about finding them? Or was it just with everyone starting a company at that point in time, people were more so finding you than you were going out finding customers?
1: Oh, we had some really great business development people. I was basically um, helping with business development, but really doing more marketing. And um, it, it was tough. I mean, we we were bootstrapping the company. We were in high growth mode, and we were also executing and delivering on some, some really change, I would say, interesting and kind of monumental projects to do mobile websites in 1998. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but but that was kind of awesome when I look back.
0: Yeah, and so like, how, how did a mobile website, I mean, I'm not, I'm doing the, a reverse dating myself, but what was a mobile website like back in 1998?
1: Yeah, one of the ones that we did was for The Economist, and it was just very text-based. I mean, it looked a lot like, you know, like like a glorified pager. Almost, it was, it was, it was not much to it, but it was very complex at that time, actually
0: getting to that. And and you mentioned during the time when you were building and running this company, that it was like a real life MBA. So were a lot of the services and stuff you and your co-founders were providing to your clients, was that some, a lot of it you learned through school or did you learn by doing it after the fact?
1: I would say we learned by doing it. I mean, it was a little of both it was a little it was sort of like here's you know there was a, an element of what the market wanted and an element of what we could provide and so you know the two coming together again i think that atmosphere in san francisco at the time i don't think it'll ever be reproduced i mean there was just a lot of excitement around people creating things that had never been done before and so we were doing that in the mobile and web development space
0: and with the, the idea that you were learning a lot by doing, what is your stance or what is your advice when someone that's looking at going to college isn't sure if they want to go? What is your advice to someone that's 17, 18 looking at colleges but isn't sure? Do you think that school is still an important route or are you more so kind of learn by doing and start trying to do get into the real world before you go to school?
1: I mean, I'm an advocate of education for sure, but I also think that nothing replaces getting out and actually doing And so I think, you know, get the education and foundation that you think you need to help you start achieving your goals. But I also think that, you know, you're never going to achieve building a business or being an entrepreneur without actually digging in and doing the hard work. And so I think there's more than one way to get there. And I think it just really depends on the individual, what they want to do and their tolerance for, um, you know, basically digging in and and building.
0: I like that cuz I feel like oftentimes when I talk to people about this whether on the podcast or off it's always they have a black or white answer yes to school or no to school. So it's I like your point of view where it's a case by case basis depending on what amount of education that each individual person needs. But speaking of the hard things when it comes to running a business, when you were running yours, you noticed there was a major issue with Round Peg. Can you kind of share what that was?
1: Yeah, and it certainly wasn't unique to Round Peg. It was a it was sort of a, a condition of the moment which was I noticed that a lot of our customers didn't have revenue or they weren't profitable. A lot of them were heavily funded, but they were basically on a, an acquisition track. Um and they really weren't they really didn't have plans to build um revenue or to be profitable in the near future. And I thought that was a huge risk for companies like us that were basically helping them to build their um user experience and and their um, e commerce um, technology, so you know with that, I decided that I was going to start focusing more on strategy, and with that, I went into consulting
0: okay and do you think that that's a similar issue we're seeing now in terms of people are building companies for acquisition as opposed for growth like is that an issue that's starting to repeat itself today?
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit of that. I think the Difference is that a lot of those companies today are actually going public um, before they have become profitable or before they even have a, um, you know, a plan to do so. So, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, a little, maybe a little less. A lot of people lost a lot of money during that time. So I think venture capitalists have become a lot, um, a lot more um, strict around their criteria for funding companies. But um, but yeah, I think a little bit of that is repeating itself.
0: And was it ultimately was it a difficult decision to leave Roundpeg to leave the company that you started, or was because you noticed that no one was no one had revenue coming in that it was a bit of an easier decision for you?
1: I think it was easier. I think I was wanting to build something new and wanting to continue to grow personally, and um, the pace that we were. That we were growing the company at at that time was also I felt unsustainable. We needed to, you know, get some infrastructure in and get some funding ourselves because we were bootstrapping it, or, um, you know, we needed to do something different.
0: And then you said after you left Brownpeg, you started doing some consulting. Did you have that plan as you were leaving, or did you leave Round Peg kind of without a pan, Without a plan and found it as you went.
1: I joined Grant Thornton which is a large global consulting firm. And I worked for a short time there um, helping to lead a e-business strategy practice. And after that, I went and did, um, you know, consulting as interim director of marketing or VP of marketing with a lot of Silicon Valley tech companies, Um, usually on the consumer side and usually um, on, you know, digital, social, mobile marketing.
0: Okay, and did I see somewhere that you started your own consulting company at one point?
1: Yeah, basically I, I worked for myself and had a few people that I that I worked regularly with, but I was basically a, a consultant, an independent consultant.
0: Okay, and there's an award you won during <laughs> that time frame, if I'm not mistaken. It was two, in 2007, it was a Silicon Valley American Marketing Association's Marketing Thought Leader of the Year Award. And you and I were talking about this before we started recording but you sent me your your submission to that and I would love if you could share with the audience how you won that award.
1: Yeah it was just a really simple model that I was working from at the time with a lot of my Silicon Valley clients and that you know at the time I was working with a lot of um, traditional marketers 2007 you know the internet was obviously um, you know pretty pervasive but social media and community building was just emerging. And so, um, you know, I was looking at sort of taking the traditional acquisition, retention, and growth model and really sort of turning that on its head and evolving it to attracting, engaging, and extending, and really treating um, sort of that Web 2.0 or community building as the cornerstone of of modern marketing. And so it was really thrilling for me that um, I won that award. It wasn't, you know, a really big award but it was it was something that was really thrilling to me because of the the people that I was with in that in that AMA um it was it was just a fantastic group I mean it included um Guy Kawasaki and a few other people that I from afar had always considered to be um mentors and people that I just really respected so it was very thrilling for me
0: And so what your submission was based on is stuff that a lot of people know today in marketing, but how were you able to identify that back in 2007?
1: Well, I was digging in and I was actually executing with a lot of those Silicon Valley tech companies and and solving real world marketing problems. Um, So I think for me, that's something that I saw over and over was working really well. Um, You know, that we were were able to do the same kind of um, acquisition, retention and growth Um, approach, but we were doing it in a very different modern way. And at the time, I mean, even community or social media was sort of considered, you know, dogs on skateboards. It wasn't considered to be really serious marketing at the time. And so um, it was a way for me to sort of bridge the gap with more traditional marketers and help
0: them understand how that could could work. Once you win that award, is becoming an award-winning marketer does that benefit you career-wise? Career-wise, to be able to say that.
1: I mean, I think I think it it's it's nice to have always nice to have your work um, recognized, right? But I think that we're not in the business uh, of marketing to get awards. But I think when people recognize us, it's always appreciated.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. And speaking of award-winning, after you you decide you wanted to get back into the agency side. You wanted, from speaking with you, you wanted to get into a small agency, but you ended up at one of, if not the biggest agencies in the world, Wonderman. What's the story behind that? How do you go from wanting to be maybe a small boutique type agency to
1: Wonderman? Um, I was working at Microsoft doing consulting and um, uh, out of Redmond, out of Seattle. And uh, Wonderman actually recruited me um, from the work that I was doing there. And they are a very large agency. Um, And they're doing, you know, even today, some very fantastic, innovative work. Um, I headed up the Emerging Media Group. And our two biggest clients were Microsoft and T-Mobile. And I did a lot of, um, for me, career-changing work there. At Microsoft, I helped build a social command center um, that now has over 150 marketers in it. Um, and drives a lot of significant engagement for the Microsoft brands. It grows across all of Microsoft. I think there's something like 28 product groups in it. And then I also got the opportunity to work on the rebranding of T-Mobile, the now Uncarrier positioning that they've taken, and did some fantastic work that I'm really proud of.
0: Back, Back in 2011, 2013, what were some beliefs people had about social media that you kind of laugh at now?
1: Well, I, I have had people tell me to my face that um, social's a fad, it would never last, um, that there was no ROI on it, um, that our customers um, just weren't on Facebook. Um, you know, I mean, I I've I've heard it all. And through all of it, I just really had to think about my own experience and my own hands-on engagement with customers because I am a marketer that really likes to dig in and really listen to customers when I'm working on a brand. Um, to me, that's kind of the fundamental step. So I knew that customers were engaging in social. I understood how to bridge the gap in the funnel um, to really help a brand engage in a meaningful way with customers. And so I never really um, wavered from that position, but I but I was kind of surprised um, I guess the the passion that people sort of stood in their in their truth about their belief that either social media was a fad or that it wasn't a legitimate marketing um,
0: approach and how did you go about convincing those people that were set in their ways that social media is going to be a fad? How do you convince them that it is not going to be and that it is actually an extremely important part of their business and marketing efforts?
1: You know, I think it's a journey. Um, I think some people will. Never be convinced. Some people still um, don't believe that social media is a credible marketing approach. They they believe still that television or other other forms of media are sort of the the one way to go. I believe in an integrated approach, and and I've spent a great deal of my career in digital, social, mobile media. But that was really because that's where consumers have been during my career. If tomorrow consumers are in VR, that's where I'll be. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, boiling, boiling sort of it down to customer truths has always been one approach I've taken. So bringing the voice of the customer inside the brand and showing marketers here is what customers are saying about our brand and how we can engage with those customers to help build loyalty or consideration um, and doing that on a regular basis. I think also then, if you look at the paid media side of social, it is one of the, the highest ROI um, forms of media that you can use today as a marketer, and, and you know the ad spend that's going into Facebook and Twitter and YouTube alone would, would you know, support that, that theory. Um, it is one of the most widely used and highest ROIs today.
0: Mm-hmm. And then back just a little bit there to where you're talking about listening to what your customers are saying and seeing how they're behaving. How do you monitor that on a consistent basis? Is it through reading the insights on social media or do you have any resources you utilize? How do you know what your customers are doing and what they want?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that really varies by the brand that you're that you're working on, right? So if you're a small business and you don't have a big budget and you don't have a lot of money for tools, you may just use some inexpensive tools, or you may just literally go onto social channels and engage with your customers and really, you know, sort of monitor daily. Um, But if you're in a global company, and you're in multiple countries working in multiple languages, it's going to require a little bit more sophistication. I think the key, though, is to really understand of what your customers are saying about your brand, obviously engaging with them and responding to them is critical. um, But gathering insights from what they're saying that are actionable is really key. So, you know, insights that come out of social listening can be anything from product ideas, customer experience, uh, feedback um, can also give you ideas for building content, can help you identify influencers. Um, It's just endless. There's, There's so much that can be gleaned from listening to customers and you know you could argue that social media is sort of the new the new um, you know customer advisory board or um, you know it, it'll give you the most real-time feedback now, having said that mm-hmm. you also have to take it with a grain of salt because you can't take what one single customer says and apply that to your entire customer base you want to see trends and you want to see volume.
0: Absolutely. It's important to stay on the pulse with your customers. And speaking of staying on the pulse as well with your customers, but also with the marketing industry, when did you first get involved with influencer marketing? When did that kind of first come across your radar? When did you execute on it for the first time?
1: Yeah, when I was doing consulting in Silicon Valley, I was lucky enough to have some exposure. My goodness, this would have been probably, I'd have to go back and look, but sometime before Wonderman, so it would have been when I was in consulting in Silicon Valley, to a campaign called the Dell 100 that so was essentially Dell's campaign with what they were calling tastemakers and creators. And there were 100 people that were changing the world using Dell technology. And so I got to work on a little bit of that. And then um, here and there, um, you know, in other companies that I worked in and consulting, I would have the opportunity to work with, um, you know, what we're now calling influencers at those time we were calling, I think we we're calling them community advocates. Um, so, you know, I think on scale, though, where I really got to work with influencers on scale was, um, was at Western Union, we really um, were able to take um, you know the idea of finding customers that were influencers, and then also sprinkling it with some celebrities and what we now call social media influencers, and coming up with uh, a representative set of influencers who were sort of always on that represented the customer, um, the customer profiles globally. And it was a good yeah. mix of you know diversity, purpose, voice, um, and also um, use cases of how people were using the products and services.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up Western Union because that was actually the direction I was heading by bringing up influencer marketing. And before we dive deeper into what you did at Western Union with influencer marketing, I want to ask what led to you going from Wonderman on the agency side to wanting to get back into the workforce on the corporate side?
1: Mm. I mean, I I had a great experience at Wonderman and did a lot of fantastic work. but I also wanted to be able to sort of impact a brand in a very meaningful way and work globally um, on digital social marketing. And so Western Union recruited me from Wonderman and um, basically to lead social media and build up uh, those capabilities for them. And, you know, in the end, I was working, um, I had a fantastic team there who we were working across over 100 countries and over 17 languages um, in social media. So it was super interesting and impactful
0: to the brand. Mm-hmm. And I actually have some stats here speaking of impactful to the brand. You mentioned influencer marketers. So you identified 13 purpose-driven micro-influencers for the campaign in which it grew engagement by 65%. And you also built the, the Woo uh, social platforms to 10 million engaged followers and had five to seven X the engagement of your competition. Would you say that a lot of the, most of these results were driven through the influencer marketing efforts you and your team did while you were there?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. But I mean, we were essentially working as an internal group that was um, working for the benefit of the region's So at Western Union, you know, you're always working with groups that are based in a geographic location that, um, you know, are quite different um, from location to location. So although we were in the United States, as I mentioned, we were working in over 100 countries and we were building community um, and social engagement for a lot of those regions.
0: And can you, are you able to share one of the micro-influencers that you partnered with during that time and how their values aligned with Western unions and some of the work you did with them?
1: Sure. Um, A great example is uh, Sean Perez. Um, Sean is a micro-influencer. He is a uh, Filipino uh, professional yo-yo champion. Uh, I think eight-time yo-yo champion. He literally plays with yo-yos for a living. And, um, he, he came to our attention through social listening, our customers that were sending money from the United States to the Philippines, um, mentioned him a lot and really, really liked him. And so I started following him and watching his content and I decided to reach out to him because I felt like, you know, the the videos he was doing, showing off his yo-yo skills were really fun and could be the great, the basis of some great social content. So I reached out to him and I asked him if he had ever used Western Union. And he came back um, with a, a snapshot of his loyalty card and said, yeah, I love the brand. And uh, and so that started off a really, really great relationship with Sean. Um, we created a lot of great content with him. And I would say, you know, looking at the if I was sort of putting on my analytics hat, um, The performance of his content was on par, if not exceeding some of the celebrities that we worked with as well. Um, His passion for the brand and his ability to really just create great content um, really kind of drove it to the next level.
0: That's fascinating. So your micro-influencers, due to their relationship with the brand and having aligned values, made them more impactful from a... a results perspective than partnering with someone bigger that doesn't necessarily have the same relationship to the brand? Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I, I think that if, if brands pick influencers whose voice really aligns with their values, that creates an authenticity and a strength that you just really can't buy. And so I think that, you know, in Sean's case, that's really what happened. We worked with him to create content through the whole funnel um, mostly video based content we had him go back to the Philippines during the Christmas season, which is a huge um, time for a lot of our Filipino customers to send money uh back home and we really profiled um you know his love of family and you know the the community that he is a part of with his uh yo
0: yoing and one thing you one thing you said there was you created content through the whole funnel and the way you look as far as my research is concerned, correct me if I'm wrong, but you look at the funnel in three sections and that's feel, think and act, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Can you just kind of elaborate a little bit more as to how that works and how you create content that works for the entire funnel with these influencers?
1: Sure. And I mean, feel, think and act is just, it's another way of saying acquisition consideration and conversion. Right. Um, So we we created videos with Sean um, to really connect emotionally and in an entertaining way with our consumers, showing off his yo-yo skills and visiting his family in the Philippines. And then we created mid-funnel content, which showed how he uses Western Union um, in his in his life. And then the convert piece or act piece was basically we had. Um, you know, his image on a lot of ads that we use to download the app and send money. I would say there was one other step there that we sort of, because he was so great for our our influencer marketing efforts, we also went to another step with him, which was to build loyalty. So the extend piece, we um, got him involved also, and we did this with several of our influencers, got him involved in our Western Union Foundation. So we had built a school in the Philippines after the tsunami um, through our Western Union Foundation that was focused on education. And when we, when we sent Sean back to the Philippines to film some videos at holiday, we also asked him to go to the school that we rebuilt. And so he went there. Um, Duncan Yo-Yos, which is sort of the gold standard yo-yo that a lot of professional yo-yoers use, Sent a thousand um, Western Union branded yo-yos to the school, and Sean showed up, and it was like a celebrity showed up at their school. The kids were so excited, and he basically showed them how to do yo-yo tricks and, and talked to them a little bit about his life, um, living in the United States. And so, uh, just getting him involved in something that he was passionate about in a way that kind of made sense just was a basis for great content, but also It profiled to the customers all the great things that Western Union was doing on the um,
0: the philanthropic side. That's incredible. So, like, what is that process like of actually going to a foreign country and building a school? That sounds like it's quite an undertaking for a company to do. Like, what was that experience like for you?
1: You know, we had a really fantastic uh, agency, creative agency called RDB, out of Austria, and they they went to 11 countries for us and filmed these 13 influencers that we worked on the uh, influencer marketing campaign or program that we had was called live more, share more. And again, it was just sort of to, you know, use this um, subset of micro influencers that were representational of so many things about the brand. They were representational of our customers, our, our values and, and use cases and, and tell their stories. Um, and so we were very, very fortunate that we had uh, an agency that was really scrappy yet really, really good at, at helping us tell those stories in our social media channels.
0: That's awesome. And I wanted to double back quickly to the funnel. So you said when you were working with him, you created content with him for each aspect of the funnel, but is there all? Is that how you view it? You have to use the same influencer to work through the funnel with them or is there a- part of that strategy, could it be partnering with a big influencer for the feel aspect to create as much awareness as possible? And then as you progress through the funnel with the potential customers, you niche down and partner with micro influencers for later in the funnel, or do you find it's more effective to work with one creator through the entire funnel?
1: Well, I'm of the belief that um, one of the main reasons to work with an influencer beyond you know, content creation is to reach a new audience. And so Sean had an audience of people that follow him, trust him, and love his story. And so I, I personally feel that it would be more effective to use the same influencer through the funnel, but to do that with every influencer, to really activate every single influencer that way um, deeply to reach their audience.
0: Okay. And then I think I believe you said it was through listening to your customers that you found, Sean. Is that how you typically find majority of the influencers you work with?
1: I mean, that and also social listening tools and, and tools like TrueFan. I know you're familiar with that. Um, I find that, uh, you know, basically looking at the audience you're trying to reach and who does that audience engage with is, is sort of where you want to get to. So, you know, you can get there in a a number
0: of different ways. Okay. And then when you land on that person's profile for the first time and you're looking at it, what makes you go, okay, yes, this is a person we should work with outside of just knowing that your consumers also consume that person's content?
1: I mean, I look for an authentic voice. I look for somebody who's first and foremost, a great creator, um, because let's face it, social media is a visual medium. And then I also look for for somebody who, you know, basically has high engagement, that it's not just vanity likes, that people are actually having a conversation around um, what they're putting out there and that it feels like it'd be a
0: good fit for the brand. Okay. And then when it comes to these creators, obviously part of their job is to create content. What is the balance between Letting them run wild and make the creative themselves versus you dictating what that creative looks like,
1: <laughs> that's a really uh interesting question. Um I would say that you know brands really should sort of let go of the creative reins and let creators create um and they're gonna get much better quality of content, and creators will ultimately create content that you hadn't even imagined um, and there's just multiple instances that this is sort of held true. Some of these happened by accident where, you know, the team involved didn't have time to really brief the creator thoroughly. And then the creator just went off and did their own thing and voila, it was, it was just magic. And then other times, um, you know, the creator really said, Hey, I, I sort of have my own audience. I have my own voice. I have the way I do things and I will work with you. But the, Mm -hmm. the, The condition is that I need to do this in my own way. And so every time that I have worked with a brand that has sort of let go of the reins, it has been fantastic.
0: And one other thing I was curious about asking too when it came to influencer marketing was when you're working with these creators, can you also work with like curation pages or people that source content from the internet? Do you find they are effective at all when it comes to influencer marketing or does it have to be a creator who shows their face there on camera? Or can it be someone that's necessarily more so behind the scenes?
1: So being, so more like an affiliate or?
0: No, more so like, for example, could you partner with like, just the example I was giving when it comes to curation pages like Moody Grams, which is an Instagram account that sources Moody photography from the internet. So can you work with a curation page for influencer marketing? Or do you find that its effectiveness, effectiveness diminishes because there's no face to that account?
1: You know, I've never done it, but I mean, I would imagine that the example you gave has a following. And so... You know again, it's really about reaching an audience that you couldn't reach. so i I think I'd be willing to try it. I've just never tried it before.
0: that's fair. And then when it comes to reaching new audiences, are you of the mindset of depth or width when it comes to your influencer marketing? Is it I know with Western Union you partner with thirteen influencers, is that the route you typically go with, or do you try to maybe scale that up a little bit more partner with more influencers to try and maximize your reach?
1: yeah, i mean i've I've scaled it up before. I've also in some brands worked with as many as, you know, a thousand or more influencers. And quite honestly, um, the value of going deep has always been better than the value of going wide. But that's just been maybe the brands I've worked with or the kinds of campaigns that I've been after.
0: That's fair enough. And then I want to ask you too about how TikTok is affecting influencer marketing from your perspective as someone that's been so heavily involved and had so much success with influencer marketing. Are you paying any attention to TikTok and noticing how it's affecting influencer marketing?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, TikTok and Twitch and um, even, you know, YouTube, uh, I'll put YouTube in there as well, all highly relevant. And I think that, um, and obviously Instagram Um, But I think that um, TikTok in particular is reaching a new audience. It's reaching a younger um, audience that I think some of the other platforms have difficulty reaching and engaging. Um, I think, again, it's like a big white canvas of creativity. And I think brands are only just starting to dig in um, and figure out how to use it. But I do believe it will continue to be highly engaged, at least through the end of the year, if not beyond
0: hmm And I think another interesting thing that I've noticed with TikTok is that a lot of people consume through the For You page. So just because you follow a creator doesn't mean you're going to see their content. So when it comes to doing influencer deals with these creators i feel like brands are going to have to relinquish that control back to what we talked about just a minute ago they're going to have to relinquish some of that creative control because if it's just a straight up looking like a commercial people aren't going to engage with it therefore it's not going to get that that boost through the for you page unless people are going to see it whereas if brands let go of that creative control and let that creator make content in their voice and in their style their followers are going to view that as more organic and engage with it which as a result will get pushed through the for you page more which will get more eyeballs onto that specific piece of content. Is that something you've observed as well?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, the other the other side of that coin then is brand safety. Right? And brands do worry about that. They worry about when they give up control will um will then, you know, creators create content that is is objectionable to them. Um and that, you know, you're going to get some of that. You really will, but the the one thing you're going to get with TikTok that I think hasn't been seen um since you know being an early adopter on other platforms is scale i mean some of the brand metrics that have been publicly talked about with Chipotle or um Haribo or other brands that have sort of been early experimenters on TikTok um you're getting into the tens of millions of engagements i mean it's or maybe even hundreds of millions in some case so i think you know the the brand safety issues in my opinion are very very small, if not um, comparable
0: to other platforms. also, you mentioned their Twitch. I've heard you quoted as saying, we haven't even seen what can be done with streaming. Can you kind of elaborate as to what you mean by that and where streaming could go in terms of influencer marketing?
1: Well, I think streaming is the new television. I mean, really, you're seeing uh, a lot of things. Twitch is a great example of that. You're starting to see talk shows on Twitch. You're seeing... um, You know, live streaming uh, on a regular basis, it arguably is television uh, or television like. Um, When it's episodic and it's regular and you've got an audience that you're building, I would argue that that's like television. Um, And so I think that uh, there's a lot of space there. When you combine that with things like esports, you know, sort of uh, interest groups, Um, live gaming. I mean, there's just so much that you could be doing there. And I just, I think it hasn't even been, hasn't even been explored yet.
0: I mean, that's exciting. I'm not personally too well versed in the streaming world, but hearing that it's only just the beginning is pretty exciting. Do you think that it's going to end up looking like a lot of, not necessarily TV ads, but maybe product placement things like that. Or what are some ideas you have when it comes to taking advantage of advertising in the streaming space?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's
0: there's sponsored
1: ads. There's um, on TikTok or sorry on Twitch. There's something called the Bounty Board where you know basically advertisers can put up a video that they will pay a bounty for for influencers to basically run on their channels. Um, there's all sorts of ways. I think that that these emerging platforms are trying to engage with advertising without making it too salesy, right? So I think like the the hashtag challenges that are happening on TikTok are a great example of that because it's engaging the audience in a, in a fun, cool way. And I think, you know, if you look at sort of, um, you know, previous, previous, um, you know, platforms that have tried to do kind of the musical thing um, where they where they really didn't succeed in TikTok has is they figured out the music licensing that, that, and that's big, that's very, very important.
0: Right. Absolutely. And then one other thing I was going to ask you about as well is how does organic social then play into all of this? We're talking about influencer marketing stuff, but how did you then make sure that when people see this influencer post, that you're tagged in their post, they come back to your page. How, what's your approach to organic social?
1: Oh, I think organic is critical. I think you need to have, you know, paid owned earned um, and you need to have it all working together and you need to be quite strategic about it. Um, I think for organic social, brands really need to figure out, I mean, that is your opportunity to put something forth in your own voice and to create as a brand, not just through others, but, um, you know, as a company. So I think really figuring out what are the what are the tenets of the messages that you want to put out there as a brand? You can also have employee social play into that. It can be your purpose. It can be a lot of different things. It really just depends on the brand and what they want to do. Um, you now see a lot of CEOs becoming that um, that voice um, of organic social, right? Microsoft and Microsoft CEO, or even arguably T-Mobile okay. CEO. Um, Really takes a very proactive stance in in that organic social piece.
0: It's interesting. And you also said earlier that you've had people that used to say and even still say that there's no ROI when it comes to social media. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to organic social media, what are some of those metrics that you track in terms of showing that there is ROI when it comes to social?
1: Well, I mean, I think you really want to look at all of the engagement metrics, right? But that's where a lot of Um, performance marketers will push back and say, but it doesn't perform. Um, I feel that, um, you know, performance or engagement metrics in social can really give you uh, not only high awareness building, uh, it can also be similar. You can you could basically look at reach um, and you can look at um, all of sort of the brand building metrics. Um, you know, propensity to buy, propensity to recommend. Um, there's so many things that you could look at. It's endless and it really just depends on your brand
0: and what your goals are. Okay. And then also building off of organic, how does paid advertising on a digi- digital platforms, how does that tie in with your influencer marketing? If in any way, other than just being two different forms of advertising that you're paying for.
1: It depends again on what you want to do with it. I hate to keep coming back to that, but there's just endless ways that you could use paid media. Um, with influencer marketing, I mean obviously you could um you know give all of your um influencers promo codes and and links and um you can measure sort of the um you can sort of amplify and measure um any of their um you know any of their content and did it actually drive traffic and revenue? There's also the ability to take influencer content and then use that as creative and paid ads. Um, there's just so many things you can do. You can create products. I mean, a lot of the beauty industry is creating products with influencers. Um, arguably some of those product, um, collaborations have been highly, highly profitable. So there's just, there's just so many, and you can see that in the sneaker, sneaker world with the sneaker heads too, right. And professional athletes. Um, There's just so many examples and it's it's endless opportunity. I think, again, what we need to get back to is looking at the influencer as a way to reach a new audience that we could not reach before um, as marketers and reach it in an authentic way with the people who love and follow that influencer.
0: Do you think this is only the beginning of brands collaborating with creators to launch products? We've seen some huge success for like the Jeffree Star, Shane Dawson, some massive success. Do you think so, do you think other brands are going to start to take note of that? And we're only just entering the beginning of brands partnering with YouTubers, and Instagrammers to create their own products.
1: Oh yeah. I think um, yes, we're only starting to see the beginning of it. And in fact, um One of the luxury fashion brands actually recently named a TikToker, TikTok influencer as um, the face of the brand. And so I think you're going to see, you know, especially with TikTok and Twitch, you're going to see some extremely creative um, ways of leveraging influencers in that way to, to collaborate and build product.
0: That's so interesting. And so back to the TikTok thing, you said that you think it'll last. Do you think at least for the rest of the year, if not into the next? So you don't think that TikTok will kind of come and go?
1: No, I think it's addictive. And (laughs) anyone who's used it finds it fun. And I think the brands are only just starting to use it. So I think it's got a, a good couple of years stretch, at least.
0: I completely agree. I think they have the most dangerous algorithm of any of the social platforms I've ever used. I think it's almost too good. When I open the app, I find that I intend to go in there for 10 minutes and I look up, it's an hour later. And I'm like, how did this even happen? But uh, speaking of apps, a shameless way to transition that there. But you, another quote I've heard you say is you think that apps will go away. Can you kind of explain a little bit as to why you think that is?
1: Well, I think as as uh, the internet of things becomes more pervasive, devices also start to become very integrated. Um And so I think that in the future, we won't necessarily have apps. We'll have, um, you know, the ability to um, engage with platforms in many other ways other than an app on our mobile device.
0: And do you think that in your greater marketing plan, is there still a space for traditional forms of marketing or do you pretty much focus solely on digital now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think integrated marketing, traditional and digital is important, particularly if you're spanning, you know, multiple generations uh, in a customer base. I think that what you've always got to do is you've got to look at where your customer is. Now, having said that, um, you know, looking at Gen Z, they are uh, a generation that loves to go in and shop in retail, that loves more, you know, is, is loyal and is more um, somewhat responsive to traditional media. Isn't to say that they aren't digital and that the journey isn't start doesn't start on digital, but they definitely um, surprise you in some ways that they respond in media. So I think just really looking yeah. at where your customer is, and I do think there'll always be a place for in real life and and more traditional media. Um, and you know, we're seeing businesses that started out as e-commerce creating retail stores and you know, retail stores becoming completely e-commerce based. So, yeah, I think it's it's part of the the
0: evolution. That's an interesting insight on Gen Z. I feel like people think it's the opposite.
1: I think that um, Gen Z is inherently mobile, social, and to get their attention, sometimes using more traditional tactics uh, can be quite
0: useful. And now, kind of transitioning a little bit, I was curious as to how you met. Elliot Robinson and Swish Goswami.
1: Ah, so um, I met them together. Um, they were two content creators that I followed on LinkedIn. And we had a lot of really great engagement on LinkedIn. And then that progressed to some discussions in private message and then discussions on the phone. And then um, when they were in San Francisco, they came to visit me. And we really, um, we really sort of saw eye to eye and had sort of similar thinking on a lot of marketing, so it was very exciting to meet them in real life and and develop a
0: relationship. And then ultimately you ended up investing in Swish's company, True Fan, right?
1: Yes, I was their first investor. Um, you know, I believe very strongly in the team there and and what they're building. And um, you know, Swish is a phenomenal entrepreneur, uh, and I know that he will be very successful no matter what he
0: does. And so, was this your personal first investment, or is investing something you've been doing for a significant amount of time?
1: This was my first investment, and um, you know, I I think that it's uh, it's well placed. So I'm very excited about what the TrueVan team is is building. I think it's a very high value, and uh, and Swish is a phenomenal entrepreneur and CEO. Like I said, he's bringing a vision of how um, how technology can really help marketers. To engage in a way that is very difficult to do otherwise.
0: Mm -hmm. And then when he came to you and told you about the idea, what stage was it at? Was it still an idea or had they started building it at that point?
1: No, it was just a concept. And what I, my feedback to him was, um, you know, more from the brand side that as a brand marketer, what I would find of value. Um, And, you know, he really, really listens and takes that to heart. And I guess. That's another thing that I really think makes him such a good entrepreneur. He really takes customer feedback and really listens to that and tries to figure out how can I solve that problem with what I've got in front of
0: me. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that you met those two through LinkedIn. And on your LinkedIn, you have over 25,000 followers. How are you able to grow your account?
1: You know, it's just um, networking, connecting, and also I think being open to not just listening, but giving back. Um, You know, many times people will reach out to me and ask me to attend an event or take a look at their resume or look at their article. And I think, you know, as part of a community like LinkedIn, the more you give back, the more you're going to get back. And so I've, you know, spent the last decade really digging in on LinkedIn and really building some meaningful connections there.
0: That's awesome. And do you do similar, do you have a similar approach to other social platforms, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or is LinkedIn kind of your primary?
1: I mean, LinkedIn is is sort of my primary for professional, Facebook for personal. Um, you know, I love Instagram and Twitter, and um, I would say I'm getting a lot more back into Twitter than I used to be. I When they sort of downgraded the, the water cooler conversation on Twitter, I got less enamored with it, but um, I'm starting to like it more and more lately. And uh Instagram I love because it's highly visual.
0: And just a complete random changing the gears here. Is it true that you meditate every morning?
1: Yes. Uh well I try to. Um, you know, so my goal is to really have a consistent morning routine that energizes me and relaxes me and sets me up for the day. And I find meditation and yoga um to really be that vehicle. It's hard to do yoga every single day, but um, meditation can only take 10 or 15 minutes so I build that into my morning
0: and then in terms of meditation is that just like focusing on your breathing or what does that look like for you because I feel like everyone meditates in slightly different ways
1: yeah for me it's really focusing on clearing my mind and then focusing on breathing and going within and just really um, focusing on positive energy and what I have in front of me for the day
0: I know you also love watching Netflix, so I was curious if you had any recommendations for myself and the listeners.
1: Yeah, I love Netflix. I love uh, also YouTube TV is something that I'm, I'm right now watching a lot of, um, and Prime, of course. Um, my husband and I recently discovered Outlander, and so I, I highly recommend it. Obviously, I'm a fan of all the Marvel Marvel um, programs, I think those have all gone over to the new Disney Channel, which I've not yet tried out. Um, but yeah, I, I I have a lot less time these days to watch it, but when I can, I like finding a series and sort of binge watching.
0: And then another thing I wrote down that you like to do in your spare time is going all the way back to when you went to school for that, you love vintage fashion. You want to make your own clothes one day, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm inherently creative and I, I still love fashion. I, uh, I collect vintage sewing patterns. I have about a, probably a thousand of them. Um, some of the older ones that I have are over a hundred years old. Um, my goal is to just, you know, basically make all those clothes at some point.
0: That's awesome. And I guess it's just a matter of fighting at a time.
1: Yeah. I am enjoying though, the sort of studying the, the art and science of pattern making and uh, construction with vintage garments. You know, it's, it's fascinating.
0: And before we wrap up here, I ask everyone the same standard set of questions. I used to call it rapid fire, but these questions really aren't rapid fire type questions, but The first one being, you're going to dinner and you can take three people. It can be anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner?
1: Oh, I'd love to have Aretha Franklin, uh, my grandmother, and probably um, Justin Trudeau.
0: Okay. I like that. What is some of the best advice you've ever been given?
1: I I would say to stay true to yourself um, and to not let other people's opinions of what you should
0: or shouldn't do ever be a factor. What's one thing people wouldn't expect about you?
1: I think that, uh, you know, for all of the things that I've accomplished in my life, I'm really just looking forward to accomplishing more. I really feel like there's a lot ahead of me that I haven't yet done.
0: That's exciting. Is there ever a concern of always chasing the next thing and ever being Happy or content with your current situation?
1: I'm happy. I think it. um, I think it's what motivates me. I think it's what energizes me. I'm curious um, and always looking to grow and learn, and so always looking to the next thing kind of keeps me keeps me focused on on that.
0: What is one thing that's so important everyone needs to know?
1: I mean, I think diversity is very very important to me and inclusion. I know it's a sort of a popular Kind of phrase that's thrown out loosely today, but having grown up in a very diverse culture in Canada, and then lived in other parts of the world that were not so diverse, um, I think diversity makes life interesting.
0: And for the final question, I kind of like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have this crystal ball, and you can ask this crystal ball any question, and we'll give you the answer. What is one question you'd want to know the answer to?
1: Ooh. I'd like to know what uh, marketing thirty years out from now looks
0: like. That's going to be exciting. It's going to be so interesting. I have no idea,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it's going to be cool. Um, but Karen, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right now.
1: Sure. Um, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Karen O'Brien, and it's O B R I E N. And then on Twitter, I'm Bond Jane Bond. Also on uh, on
0: Instagram. And what's the story behind the Bond, Jane Bond, Instagram and Twitter handles? You
1: know, Karen O'Brien was even early on taken um, surprisingly early. So um, I just I've always been a James Bond fan. So that was sort of my female spin on James Bond.
0: Fair enough. But I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be on the podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through, you've only listened to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a favor, go and follow Karen on Instagram, Twitter, and connect with her on LinkedIn. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. And if you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and at the Jacob Kelly, feel free to come and say hello. My DMS are always open. And if you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and at my social life podcast or on YouTube by searching up my social life. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. If you've listened to this far, I truly appreciate you. Now, as promised, I present to you a bonus conversation that I had with Karen about how brands can effectively navigate the coronavirus situation karen welcome back to my social life i'm happy to have you back on the podcast because since we last recorded this episode a lot has changed in those few weeks we're now dealing with a global pandemic that's affecting all businesses and the world so i'm glad to have you back on so we can kind of touch on this and how brands can operate now with in this uncharted territory so what is your perspective on how marketers should be thinking right now in terms of the coronavirus
1: well i mean i think you know marketers need to really step up especially marketing leaders and offer help um information and i think most of all hope for their employees their customers and for the community at large we're definitely dealing with a large global pandemic but there's also been many of us who have dealt with the dot com meltdown 911 2009 financial crisis. We will get through this. And on the other side of this, there will be a different business climate. Um, I think this is a time to really connect with your employees and your customers and really lead. I think there's some things right now that businesses could do. So I think, for example, um, if you're a small business and you don't have your business completely online, uh, or there are parts of it that you could be getting online, work to do that now. Um, there are tools like TrueFan, uh, I know you're familiar with that, that are helping SMBs to connect with their most engaged customers and really understand sort of the metrics around their business. So, leverage tools, get online do as much as you can to sort of digitize or get your business online. I think also um, reaching out to your customers and seeing how you might be able to help them or revise your business model based on how things are going for them. There's a lot of businesses we see right now that are either completely closing up or reimagining themselves. And at the other side of this, we know that some of the best businesses and best business ideas are. Born out of just new kind of unimagined
0: um, needs and when it when it comes to communicating with your consumers, with your customers, especially in a social media perspective, and I know you touched on earlier providing information and value and stuff like that. How delicate is that balance for brands to not be overly involved with the coronavirus in terms of their online communications? Like I'm thinking of like inserting themselves into the conversation when they don't need to be. It's like how delicate is that balance of, of course, you want to make sure your customers are okay and you want to provide value to them, but you don't want to look like you're taking advantage of this situation.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's um, sort of a question amongst the marketing community. Do we still keep marketing as usual? And I think that's, you know, the answer is always, it depends. I think the message needs to change and the message needs to be very much aligned with what your customers need and what they're going through right now. At the same time, businesses and needs still go on. So for the short term, I see that most marketers are still doing some form of marketing, although the way they're landing it and the messaging may have changed dramatically. Um, I was just going to say that uh, I know that also many small businesses are also just going old school. They're emailing customers, picking up the phone and calling them, and really becoming more human at the same time as becoming more digitized.
0: What are some examples of brands you're seeing that are responding to this in a really good way? Like if someone's listening to this, and they're not sure how they should operate with their business or the brand that they work for. Like who? what are some examples you can point to that? Look at what these guys are doing because they're handling this situation really well.
1: Well, I think, for example, um, LVAMH basically like creating hand sanitizer from their perfume business or, you know, Christian Siriano the other day putting his hand up to the state of New York, Andrew Cohen, saying, I've got seamstresses at the ready who will help to sew masks and gowns. Um, That's the kind of thing that we need right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Seattle restaurant that I read about closed their, their location and, and opened up three different new businesses. Uh, You know, a drive through sort of kiosk thing, Uh, you know, some uh, delivery of food and some other businesses. They're reimagining themselves. And I think, You know, the way that you would then market either those new services or just stay, if if you're a business that literally has to completely shut down, eventually consumers are going to need what you have. I think that that's a thing that's really hard to continue to remember. On the other side of this, people are still going to need their haircut. They're still going to need their houses cleaned. They're still going to need, you know, beauty services. If you've had to shut down, just stay top of mind with your customers and be of service where you can, because on the other side of this, when everyone does return to work, they're still going to need what you have.
0: And on the other side of this, how do you think consumer behavior is going to change moving forward? Like, what are some industries you think that are going to be affected not only now, but after the fact, because of a change in the way consumers behave as a result of the coronavirus?
1: Well, I mean, I think retail is a great example. Retail is primarily still mostly in real life, right? People walk into store locations for the most part. Um, Now, more than ever, they're learning to order online. They're learning to order curbside service. Um, Sort of the consumer experience of retail is changing dramatically. And I think that that will have an effect on consumers long after this is over. I also think that, um, you know, there's definitely a trend or a desire to buy from companies that care and that have purpose. And I think companies that really walk their talk during this time will favor a lot of brand loyalty and customer favorability on the other side.
0: And what are some ways you can show that you walk the talk? Like what are some ways that brands can show that they truly care and they truly believe like they truly have a purpose?
1: I think putting
0: people before
1: profits, so, you know, thinking of your customers and your employees first and short term not being focused on profit, although, you know, I, I get that some small businesses need to survive, but doing what's right right now is really what we should be doing.
0: Completely agree. And I was curious too, like, so you mentioned how people are now learning to shop online and retail is adapting to that. Do you think once we kind of get to the other side of this, at least initially, we're going to see a boom in terms of experiences and people looking for reasons to get out of their house because they're going to be so cooped up. They're going to have that cabin fever feeling that they're going to be looking for things to do. So you're going to see that potentially we can see things swing in the opposite direction of people looking for places to go and reasons to get out of the house.
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, Sure. I think short-term after, you know, everyone is sort of not self-isolating anymore, they're want going to want to go out. But I think also there's going to be changes to people are spending more time with their family now. They're having more me time. They're learning to work virtually. So I think even the experience of the workplace is going
0: to change. Mm-hmm. And like, what are some ways you think that we'll see the workplace change as a result of this? Like just more remote working or what are some things you're thinking?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who never thought that they could or would work remotely that are now, you know, experiencing that and enjoying it uh, or just making it adapt. And I think that, uh, you know, they're going to learn um, what they like and don't like about the office workplace and about working virtually. And again, I think that will just change the dynamic of, of work structure and organizations.
0: Are there any companies you think that are going to come out the other side of this more, for lack of a better word, more prominent? Like we're seeing a rise right now, of course, in Zoom and obviously with no sports and everyone being home, esports is going to take a huge significant boost from this. Is there any other industries or companies you're seeing that not because they're capitalizing on it, but just because of what they offer are going to come out more again, prominent after this is all done?
1: I mean, I think it's still yet to be seen. I think some of the fashion houses are going to really step up and help with some of the short-term needs that are going to be around the coronavirus. I mean, the medical community is rallying together. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens on the other side of this.
0: It definitely will. And is there anything else that you'd like me to bring up here before we kind of log off?
1: I think just you know take this time to spend time with people you care about, your family, your friends, if that's virtual or if you are isolating with them. Take time to work on your business. How many times do we say we want to work on our business, but we don't really have time to do that? So start planning for the post-coronavirus time period um, while you have the time to actually do that and enjoy that
0: time. 100% Karen I want to thank you for taking the extra time here to come back on the podcast to share your thoughts around how the coronavirus is impacting businesses brands and marketing I want to thank you once again and I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast we'll talk soon